Why don't we thank Josh and Rachel Kemp. Um, Rachel looks after our mini lifters. Josh obviously looks after our kids and youth. And um, you know, quite often we see what happens here and we know what's happening on the adult side because we talk about it. Uh, but then the other, um, I guess sometimes we call next-gen ministries can be a little bit more hidden and they do a power amount of work. Just the older preparation, all of that that goes into uh, working with your uh, children. Um, we, we so treasure them and um, so hopefully that gives you a sense of where we are trying to take things this year. Uh, we've we had so many conversations together about you know what God is wanting to do over the course of this year and really excited. I think it's going to be awesome to see how God takes this and builds it over the next year. Um, all right, well, after next week's picnic, we come back to a brand new series, um, and it is a series that I'm actually really excited to explore. You see, the mission of our church, as we've already mentioned, Pastor Beck mentioned a, a few moments ago, is to inspire people to live. And we took that from John 10, verse 10. In the message version, it says, uh, Jesus said this, I came that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever imagined which is awesome it's so cool and we want to inspire you through all that we do as a church for you to pursue that life and to step into that life but the question is what does that life look like doesn't mean that you never face any troubles in life doesn't mean that whenever you apply for a promotion you get a promotion doesn't mean that whenever you apply for a new job you get a new job already some of you are saying no well that didn't happen so that mustn't be it you know doesn't mean that you never fall sick i, I just had a cold this week which is like yeah after the saying that sickness and um stress go hand in hand i was like maybe i'm stressed but you know what does it mean to, to have this life that is better than you've ever imagined? If we can't even imagine it, maybe we can't really know it. But that's where we want to explore what Jesus says about life, what the Bible teaches us about what God opens up for us. We hope that it's going to be a real refining um, conversation, I guess, over, over the four weeks that we have in this series, uh, to talk about the life that Jesus allows you to have through His sacrifice and what He's done. The truth is, I believe that some people are going to go, well, that doesn't actually sound that amazing. And that's going to be because the way that Jesus talks about life is different to how we have imagined it. And sometimes it's completely contrary to what we believe life should look like. And that's going to scare some people. But if we realize that Jesus is the ultimate designer, that He has created you specifically. He knew you before you were born, knit you together in your mother's womb. He planned uh, every step of your life, wanting you to prosper, wanting you to experience fulfillment and meaning. If you trust that Jesus, then as crazy as the life that He describes in His Word might be to us, is going to be good. And so that's what we're going to be talking about when we get back after the picnic next week. Um, today, we finish off our What to Do When series. Two weeks ago, we spoke about what to do when I've got options. We wanted you to steward your resources that God has given to you well. And then last week, we, we spoke about what to do when I'm feeling stressed. And we spoke about good stress. Who remembers what good stress is technically called? You stress. You stress. Awesome. 
Very proud. You get gold stars, everyone. And um, you stress is a good thing. We want to be stretched. We want to be uh, pushing to grow in our lives. That's what you stress helps us with. But we can step into distress, which is very damaging for our thinking, our processing, our bodies. We need to learn how to rest in order to get out of distress, we need to learn how to seek after uh, proper expectations and resource uh, and, and a perspective on all those things. We spoke about how stress is actually more of a perspective than a reality. It's our perspective of reality. It causes us to live in stress. And so we talked about all those things. That's all available on podcast. Uh, people have been saying that that's been a really helpful, practical session and, and I, I really just want people to be able to take those things and to live your year out and flourish through these practical things. But today we're going to talk about something um, that is quite interesting to me. I'm going to talk about what to do when I've lost something important to me. We are talking about grief in particular. Last year, I shared a story that I came across um, my, in my readings. It was written by a counselor who came in contact with a man named Joe. Now, Joe is a, not his real name, I don't think, um, but Joe is a successful businessman, and he was doing really well in life, and he had just gotten a promotion, a promotion that he had been working towards. Uh, but what happened after he got this promotion was really strange, because he started to get really angry and started to lash out at people in his life. He was lashing out at his wife, at his kids, and he was lashing out in his workplace to the point where the board of directors of this company actually came to him and said, we are sending you to anger management. You know that something is really bad when your boss, the person who's paying you, is saying you need to go for anger management classes. So he, he went to this counselor and they started to talk about what was going on. And, and it wasn't about managing his anger as much as it was uncovering what was going on internally. See, anger is an emotion that is uh, sometimes it's a primary emotion. It's the first thing that we face. For example, if, if you see a, a child getting beaten around, you might get angry and that is your first response because there is a, a righteous anger that, that, that appears that you want to save this child. But quite often, anger is also a secondary emotion. It's a masking emotion because deep underneath that anger, there's these emotions that are a little bit less fun to deal with. And so we often reach into anger. I know that in my life, anger has often been a masking emotion. But as he was dealing in, uh, with this um, anger and was talking things out with his counselor, his counselor diagnosed him with frozen grief. With frozen grief. He found out that Joe had witnessed his father passing away through a heart attack while they were working together on the farm. And as he was properly going through a grieving process, it was stopped up by his mom coming to him and saying, Joe, you are now the man of the house and we are all looking to you to manage this household. It comes from a time when the, the man of the house looks after the household and his mom, probably in a well-meaning way, probably well-intentioned, wanting him to understand that there's this responsibility that's going to come because of this change. But for him, what it meant was that the experience of all these wounds, uh, there's this trauma, this loss, was weakness. 
And so he stuffed that grief down, and instead of processing his grief, he simply tried to forget his grief. He threw himself into work, and he threw himself into being a responsible human being, which he ended up being probably over the top with. And, and he would work extremely hard. He had this, this, this need inside of him to be able to provide and to be able to be seen as competent, to never feel weak emotions. That was how he was leading his life. But just before he got this promotion, something happened. He, his mom passed away, which brought about emotions of grief once again. But because he did not know how to grieve because of what had happened when he was younger, he probably tried to do exactly the same thing, which was to throw himself even deeper into his work. But all those emotions were too much for him to bear, and it surfaced as anger in his life. The result was that he needed to learn how to unfreeze his grief. And that's what is really interesting as I have studied grief, especially over the last year, Beck and I are on an adoption journey, and we want to, uh, a part of it is that adoption is always associated with loss, and that's something that we've had to learn and, and to wrap our heads around, because simply having a very young infant placed in our care doesn't mean that they don't understand loss. In fact, the loss is encoded into their emotions, and it comes up in all sorts of ways in their life, which is something that we had to learn about, and, and so I want to make sure that my child is, is, is in a space where he or she is able to process grief because without processing grief, it becomes frozen grief, which pushes you and motivates you in ways that you don't even know. In fact, I would say that a lot of people that I speak with, a lot of people that I try to help that God brings into my care, I would say that there's elements of frozen grief that is motivating them and is causing them to act in certain ways. We need to process grief. But as I learn more about grief and I learn more about what it is and, and, and me going, you know, I'm going to teach my child how to grieve properly. And, and I was thinking all about my child and then I felt God turned that around and go, Nate, you don't even know how to do it yourself. You don't even know how to process grief. And I was like, yes, I do. You see, I don't feel any pain from the losses that I have faced in my life. And, I, and, and he was like, yep, that's exactly why. You have no idea what processing grief looks like. You see, when I studied grief and I, I was trying to put together what, what does it even mean uh, to grieve and, and I was searching on, on Dr. Google and trying to get some definition around it, a grief is, is called a normal natural response to loss. And we all kind of intuitively understand that grief and loss are linked together. And as I typed into Google, what does the Bible say about grief? I found a whole bunch of websites, all quite reputable Bible websites, about what was a theme that came up in the verses that these people use in association with grief was that God is going to take away your pain. God is going to take away your sorrow. There will be a day when you will no longer face affliction. There will be a day when there is no more mourning. And there is a sense that, that many people, when they think about handling grief, they're not talking about processing grief, they're talking about overcoming grief. And that's something that I think all of us associate with processing grief. We actually are thinking about overcoming grief. We're thinking about jumping over grief. And when we associate grief with loss, we automatically think painful, suffering, 
And what is our normal human reaction to pain and suffering? Don't all look at me as though it's like, whoa, what is it? You avoid it, right? You don't want to face it. When, if I know that there is pain coming and I know that there's a way to avoid it, or do you think I'll be like, yeah, come at me? No, I'm not that stupid. You know, if I'm going to be come, driving along the road and I see a drunk driver turning into my lane and I see, oh, that's going to be really painful, what do I do? I avoid it. Our natural human instinct of pain is to avoid it. It is a good natural instinct. And so when we associate grief with only loss, only pain, only affliction, we automatically avoid grief. And that's something that I have realized that many people, including myself, do. I was speaking with a young man who had just broken up from a long-term re- a relationship. Uh, they, it, was, it was probably, I think, a year, maybe a year and a half that, that they were dating. They broke up. Two weeks later, I said, how you going, mate? Like, you know, it's like, how, how are you processing and, and what's going on? I said, like, oh, I'm over it. I'm done. I'm all good. I was like, you are not all good. Six months later, he gets into another relationship with a girl that is very similar to his ex, and they go on and they date for another six months and then they break up. And he goes on this cycle for many rotations because he doesn't want to process the grief. I'm over it. You're over the sense of pain, the feeling of pain. You've numbed yourself. You've frozen that grief. You've not processed it. And so as I started to search up and try to understand grief a bit more, God put a certain phrase on my heart, and I'm going to try to unpack this with you. I'll be honest and say this is still something I'm processing and learning, but one, one of the things that really got me in my studies is that grief and delight are intricately linked together. Instead of thinking about grief as loss, which it is, Grief and delight is something that is actually a lot more linked than we know. I'm going to read you, and uh, this is a fascinating account of grief in the Bible. It comes from 2 Samuel 12, 15 to 23. You can note that down, and I'll read it in a second. I'll just give you the background. We're looking into the life of King David, and King David was known as a man after God's own heart. He was a man who wrote most of the Psalms that we read in the Bible, Psalms of praise, but we also read many Psalms of outpouring of grief and outpouring of pain. This was actually a man that knew how to grieve reasonably well. When, you, when, when people talk about processing grief, when counselors talk about processing grief, they often will point out Psalms in the Bible where David was writing, my enemies surround me, God, you have abandoned me. What do we do about those moments where we feel alone and abandoned? Well, David writes about them. And he writes about it probably in a more literal way because they come at me with swords and spears. We don't really have that literally, but, but emotionally and psychologically in, in the situations that we face, David actually talks a lot about his grief, his sorrow, his pain and his suffering. And counselors often point towards that. But one thing that David did terribly was that he had an affair. And then after having an affair with this woman named Bathsheba, he actually kills her husband. He was an adulterer and a murderer all in one shot, which was a horrific thing. And so the prophet Nathan is sent by God to confront David, tells him God knows about your sin. And what is going to happen from here is that the son that was about to be, uh, that is born to you through this adulterous affair is going to die. 
As a consequence of you being disobedient, this child is going to die. So we pick this up, um, 2 Samuel 12, verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. This is how we know that David is grieving. In Jewish culture, when a person puts on sackcloth, it means that they are in grieving. They are in mourning. They are going through this process. They are making themselves physically uncomfortable as a show of their emotional discomfort. He was going through a grieving process even though this child had not died yet. The elders of his household stood before, uh, beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us. And when we spoke, when we spoke to him, how can we now tell him the child is dead? He might do something desperate. David noticed his attendants was whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Think about this. Grief and delight are linked. When we see grief as something, as about loss, if we see grief as this thing that is external, I've lost this, I've lost that, the grieving process, the natural response to the, the loss of this is uh, I'm moving and it's all good. Right? That's how we think about grief. It's this process of letting go of that that is already lost. We have no touch, no control over. But what we don't realize is that when we talk about loss, I've lost that relationship. I've lost that dream. I've lost that job. I've lost that thing. And we talk about it as external. We fail to deal with the internal grief, which is really what is going on. And that's where delight comes in. Because what we are grieving is the loss of the delight that we used to have from this. This was actually linked to me. See, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so when we treasure something, when we delight in something, our hearts are knitted and attached to it. So even though I physically might be trying to move myself here, my heart is still over there. And this is why I keep doing things out of old thinkings and, 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 and this frozen grief because my heart is still there and it's still motivating me. I might not be conscious of it, but it's still doing something in me. 
What I need to realize when I'm grieving is that whatever I had lost was important to me and I had a source of delight in it. I want you to see what David said when his attendants came to him and said, why are you doing this? Why are you okay now? He said, he said, I, I thought maybe the Lord may be gracious to me. It was the child that was sick. It was the child that was dying. It was a child that had a death sentence given to him. But David said, may the Lord be gracious to me. Because he realized that his child living was more for his benefit than for the child's benefit. It was for his delight and not for the child's delight. This child was born out of a horrific, sinful experience. And, and he wanting this child to live was a purely selfish thing. When we go through grief, the first thing that we need to do is to realize that I had delighted in that. I had delighted in that. And one of the first things I learned that I do when I go through loss is that I did not need that. How many, how many people are like that? I'm like, I don't need you anyway. I never needed that. I'm stronger than that. I, I, I'm over it. I'm over it. You're not over it. You, you, you're physically maybe trying to be over it, but you're just trying to distract yourself from it. You're just trying to forget that that thing meant something to you. For Joe in the story that we read, he never had the opportunity to say, my relationship with my dad was something that was so important to me. It was just saying, no, 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 you move on and you become a man. Stop being a child. Those childish He was never allowed to acknowledge his need for his dad. And this is something that I have learned. And this is quite a difficult perspective shift in my life that I am learning how to make. That when I lose something and I pick up that I, I, I sense that grief is like, take a moment. Why was that thing important to you? One of the things that I learned over the last couple of years was that one of the, one of the most practical um, ways that frozen grief affected me that I did not know about was that when I started um, being a pastor, one of the first things I thought I needed to do was to work more closely with people and to coach people, to mentor people, to disciple people. What I did not know at that time, because I was young and naive, is that I thought that when I give people a growth plan, they will stick to it. Yeah, and so this is the these are the areas where you are really crap at, and if you work on these things, you will be perfect. So if you follow those things, Nate will be your savior, and everything is going to be okay. That's what I used to think subconsciously, sometimes consciously. And um, what I did not know is that people are people, and people don't do things the way that you want them to. And I had many relationship breakdowns over my life that was of that kind where I was trying to help someone and this person would choose very destructive things in their life. I just went in those moments, I don't, I don't need you anyway. You need me more than I need you. So if you don't want me, I'm moving on. I'll, I'll disciple you instead. But what I did not realize is that I actually got a source of delight from each and every one of those people. Partly because I believe that God called me to them. 
And so there was meaning and purpose behind me coming alongside these people. There are relationships that you've lost that was actually God-ordained. And, and it's painful to say, well, God ordained it for that season, and, but right now it's no longer going to be a part of my life. And I did not know how to do that because no one told me that I needed to take a moment and say, I really enjoyed that relationship. I really got something out of that relationship. And sometimes it was also, I got a sense of personal identity from that relationship that if this person was able to take those steps that I believe was helpful for them, they would actually be able to take those next steps. And I would be able to see, wow, I can actually do something to help people. I got a source of delight from where the potential of this relationship was going as well. I needed to stop and to go, that hurts because my heart was there. That hurts because my heart was there. And there are some relationships that we need to look through where we still are trying to get some sort of delight, but maybe in counterfeit ways. You know, I, I, I've spoken to many people and they, they tell me about some of the words that still stuck with them about what a parent said or, or teacher said or someone of influence said over their life. It's like, you, you will never amount to anything or, or you will do this. And what they do is that because that relationship was important to them, and they place it of importance to them. They want to have that person say, I'm proud of you today. And so that frozen grief based on, those, on that relationship that never got to a place that they wanted it to go to, those words have more effect on them than they wanted to. For me, what I did is that after a few people that hurt me, and honestly, looking back, I probably hurt them too, just being real, I discovered that I don't want to be so close to people because people hurt. Sometimes people suck. And so instead of discipling them and saying, I'm going to give you my heart, and say, I'm going to give you my intellect, but not my heart. That's what I did. I was like, I'm going to coach you. And when you move on, I have never given you my heart, so I'm moving on. It became easier for me to leave, but it became harder for me to love. That's what happened to me. In the attachment, in, in, in adoption world, one of the things that you talk about is that the big thing about grief and loss is that when you don't process grief, you never attach again. And so for our poor little child, if he or she doesn't process the grief, it becomes really hard for that child to see Beck and myself as a safe place. Their thought is, when are you going to leave? They have to process that grief and say, that happened to me. It was really painful. I really wanted a family that I could grow. I wanted a, a safe place. I wanted all of that things. It didn't happen. And I did not get the delight that I deserve, that I expected from that. Step one is acknowledging. David did. The, this child is precious to me. May God be precious to me. The next thing we do is to take a step into understanding that that source of delight has been stopped up and to not go back to that source. That's part of the grieving process. This is where in particular a lot of anger comes out. So I tried so hard to love you, but you were the one. You were the one. You were the one that hurt, you were the one that turned around, you were the one that was an idiot, and I'm the one that's hurting. That is not fair. 
But when I don't acknowledge that I'm not trying, that I can't get delight from this anymore, I still somehow want that to give me delight. Even though it's lost, even though it's gone, I'm still, I hate you, but I, I, I need you. I hate you and I need you all at the same time. That's, some, that's a place that so many of us get stuck in that we know that something in our life is causing us hurt because we haven't let it go. Or we still feel the draw and the need to go back because it was a source of delight at some point in our lives. David got to a place where he said, the child is dead. And he immediately took himself to a place of, there was hope that that would one, one day still be a source for me. That was taken away and he acknowledged it. The child is dead. This is painful. It's not easy. I used to get delight from that. That's not going to happen anymore. If you don't take these steps, your heart is still with that treasure. Your heart is still with that treasure. And then from there, when you acknowledge that that source is now gone, turn to God and say, show me where delight comes from. David worshipped when he found out that his child was dead. I have found that in the midst of my grief, one of the hardest things to do is to worship God because I still want that to be my source of delight. But when I step into God's presence, I have to learn how to allow God to be my delight. But someday it's not fair. I want that to be my source of delight. I want that to be my... No, God, you don't get to take that place. I've been there. When I lost my first dating relationship, romantic relationship, and I was in God's presence, I was feeling His comfort, but at the same time, I was damn angry at Him. I wanted to scream at Him and say, I didn't do anything wrong. Why was that taken away from me? But I felt His comfort, and it was this strange place of being comforted while being angry at the person that's trying to comfort you. <laughs> How strange it is grief. Now, one of the things I love doing, because I've seen how helpful it is, is when people are going through that shift of delight, it's, like, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to feel the, these multiple emotions. Yes, that was the source of delight. Yes, that's gone. Yes, it hurts. You're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to be angry that that situation happened. You're allowed to be angry that that is taking place. But you're also allowed to choose where your delight comes from next. You see, Psalm 37 verse 4 puts it this way, take delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And I, when I saw this, it blew my mind because the psalmist, David, says take delight. Not find delight, not receive delight, but take. See, I started to learn that Delight is something that I feel, but it's also something that I choose. So often there are destructive relationships in my life that have ended, but I was still trying to take delight. I was still trying to choose that that relationship would work out the way that I wanted to because that would make me feel delight. I was still taking delight from there. What happens when we come to God is that we get this moment of saying, God, is that where true delight comes from? 
And that's how we take the light from God when we say, God, you are first and foremost my creator, my designer. You know my beginning and you know my end. You know my needs before I even know them. You know my tomorrow. You know everything about me. So what is my source of delight? And quite often God would say me. And that is really hard when your heart is somewhere else to say, yes, God. When we sing songs like, lead me to you, forever, Lord, I will pursue. It's easy to say, but in our hearts, when you look at your life, are you truly giving everything to the pursuit of God? I would put forward that most of us, myself included, would struggle to say that's 100% true. I'm not saying that you can't sing that song because you're lying, but it's a sentiment of the song that helps us to realize maybe there are other pursuits. See, I've learned that grief is intricately linked to delight, it is linked to sources of delight, it is linked to potential for delight, it is linked to where our heart is going to because we think that that's where the treasure is. I've learned that grief is about repentance of that source. Repentance is simply the changing of mind. And there are times where I have to go, that thing, that relationship, that dream, whatever that is, that isn't going to give me delight anymore. So God, help me to reorient my life. Where do you want me to look? Where do you want me to pursue? See, God doesn't stop us from having delight. He just simply knows when the well has dried up and then he knows where the next well is. He is orchestrating what is going on. Grief is necessary because if we don't let go of the old, we will never reach the new. The Bible tells us again and again, forgetting what is behind, I strain forward. I strain forward. I push forward. Why is it a strain? Because sometimes what is behind us is a lot more attractive than the unknown of the future. Jesus says that he talks about the wineskin, the old wineskin, and he says that no one puts new wine in old wineskins because the old wineskins will burst. God knows what is ahead of you, but sometimes you still want the old wineskins of past relationships, past dreams, past expectations. And you're trying to fill up what God has for you in that old thing, and it's bursting not able to contain what God has for you. And sometimes we get angry. I get angry. And it's like, you were wanting to give me that and then you took it away. It's like, no, I gave you the thing, but you used the wrong container. There's some of you in 2020 that you need to understand that you've been filling God's grace into old containers because of your unprocessed frozen grief. Every season you step into requires you to grieve. So many times we say, I want things to be new. But we don't let go of the past. Why? Because grief is equal to loss. Loss is equal to pain. Pain is something I avoid. But if I link grief with delight, Grief is about finding a true living source of delight. Maybe over time, with God's help and the help of his family, I can let certain things go. I don't know if I put that as eloquently as I would like. 
I know there are probably still gaps in this thought and this process. But one thing I know for sure is that many of us are trapped because there are things from the past that we are still mulling over that are still going through our mind. Things that people said, expectations of certain relationships that are still coursing through our brain and we keep thinking and mulling over them and going, why is life so unfair? When will things ever change? I feel like God's highlighting to some people for things to change, you need to change. You need to let go of certain things from your past. There's some things that you've built in your mind that make sense to you, and you say, why would God ever want me to let that go? No, seriously, there's someone in this room that is saying, why would God ever ask me to let go of that thing, that relation? I don't know what it is, but that made sense. That is how the world works. But God's putting His hand on it right now, and He's saying, that's not how... The world works because I made it and I know what, how it works. And he's saying there's a new source of delight that is available for you, but not before you let go of the past. I'm not saying that grief is easy. I'm saying that grief is necessary. I'm not saying that grief is something that you can just breeze through, even with this newfound knowledge. I'm just saying that grief is necessary because you will never change if you don't grieve. And so right now, if I can get the band up, if you can do pursue, but do it really softly at this point. Can I get everyone just to close your eyes? This is not easy to hear. It's not easy to hear because you are letting go of something that was absolutely precious to you. You're giving up something that your heart was bonded to. Of course it's not easy. But I really feel like God is saying, change your perspective. Everyone's got things to grieve. You're not weak if you have to grieve. Can I ask you just to take this moment, close your eyes and ask yourself, is there anything that I was receiving the light from or thought that I could receive the light from that I'm holding on to. For some of you, it isn't, it, 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 it even is just, I thought life would be like this. I thought life with God would be easier. Maybe that's your grief. Maybe that's been causing you grief. What is that thing that you've been holding on to? And maybe in this moment you can take a, have the courage to say that thing is, is dead. It's lost. I'm not going to come searching for delight in it anymore. And in this moment, maybe you will find yourself a little bit freer to, to worship, just as David did. He came into God's presence at the loss of his child, and he worshipped. So this morning, the band is going to lead us into a moment of worship. And I want you just to take this moment to just worship. Now, if you're finding yourself really stuck, 
and unable to worship, it probably means that there's stuff that you're not processing. If that's you, we would love to stand with you and to pray with you. Perhaps God will reveal what is going on, or perhaps God is just going to be comforting you and revealing things to you by Himself. Whatever the case is, we are here for you and with you. And so can we just stand together, church, as we sing this bridge? Let's just allow God to speak into our hearts. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.